Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. I ask you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Genesis 22. This will be the place where we will pitch a tent in our current series on patriarchs and matriarchs. But I might add that before we read the text, I don't know that there could be, uh, Glenn, a better selection for an anthem that readies the mind and heart than what we have just heard, because it is the truth that each of us has some kind of alabaster box. And in whatever treasure we have poured our lives, there is the possibility that we can trade that in for something even more glorious how difficult, how hard it is, how challenging it is to to hand over and relinquish the thing that we treasure most in this life. And yet, we cannot read the text we're about to read until the soul gets in touch with that powerful invitation. Until you, in hearing this story, Get in touch with whatever it is that you value most in your life. Only then can we hear the transforming power of this text. So will you now turn your worshipful attention with me to Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham... He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains that I will show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering. He set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father, and he said, Here I am, son. He said, The fire and the wood are here, but... Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb 
for a burnt offering, my son. So the two walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took a knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God and since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The reading of the sacred and trustworthy, reliable, disturbing, unsettling, troublesome, word of the living God. Let's pray. God, help us to understand in the mysteries of all that we don't know, help us to understand just something today that helps someone put one foot in front of the next. We are here because there is something in you that has drawn us we yield before the, the power of your presence, the mystery of your presence, but we admit to you that sometimes we just don't understand it. Show us something today that helps. Amen. So today is part seven of an ongoing series. We've been for seven weeks in a study called The Patriarchs and Matriarchs. Why? Because we've been attempting to learn something about what it looks like to walk in the way of faith. And who better to ask than our ancient mothers and fathers in the faith who did it? They, they did it so well, but they did not do it flawlessly. They walked a while and fell flat. Got up again and walked a while and fell flat. And in their vulnerability, in their failures, in their humanness, Maybe we find the very best source of a teacher. So we've been looking in the lives of the matriarchs and patriarchs, and today I will tell you we come to an unsettling passage. And a few disclaimers before we begin. I think that before we jump into a, a text as rich and as glorious, as beautiful, as unsettling as this one is, we have to list, list one or two disclaimers so that we frame our expectation about this passage of Holy Scripture. The first is this. This is disturbing. I mean, this is disturbing. And if, if you are somebody who is on the edge of faith, on the edge of belief, 
Maybe you're, you're somebody who you, you came here as a favor today to a friend who is all in. They're all about religion and faith and spirituality, and, and you're just interested enough to say, okay, I'll go. There's a free lunch right afterwards, so I'll come. Right? Maybe you're there, and yet it's stories like this that disturb you the most. Maybe it's stories like this that, that make you say, see, that's why I don't believe. Because that's an image of a God who is demented, who is disturbed, who is a sick and twisted uh, deity, right? And we look at somebody, we say to ourselves, we know even average fathers on earth who would never suggest something like that for their son, and he's supposed to be the divine, and so I get it. If you are there and you are struggling and you're like, this is one of those stories that makes me not want to believe, I get it, okay. But hang on if you can hang with us for just a a few moments because there are a few things we have to understand about this kind of Bible. You know, there is another concept that helps us frame this and understand it, and and we're not going to explain it away because there are some stories you just can't explain away. But there is a concept that we refer to as progressive revelation. It's just kind of a way to describe the fact that, listen, as we move through the Bible, the truth is this. We know more about the nature of God at the end of the book than we did at the beginning of the book. You know, the Bible is the story of of our human species, people of faith, getting to know God, walking with God, learning some things about God and about ourselves. And if you keep that in mind through the whole of Scripture, then it makes sense that in the very beginning, as new people of faith, new species of faith, we're figuring some things out. That's why when we as Christians say, hey, in Jesus Christ, in the face of Jesus Christ, as Colossians says, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We're confessing that there are some things that Jesus helped us work out that we didn't have worked out until he came. You you hear Jesus teaching and he says, look, you have heard it said, but I say to you this. So there's a progression through Scripture and we have to keep in mind that, that that is part of what's going on in this text Because there were neighbors around Abraham whose God required child sacrifice. And many uh, theologians, scholars, point out the reality that that this story is not necessarily a story that that suggests that God wants child sacrifice. (laughs) But rather, the story is inserted in this context to demonstrate that he's a God who doesn't. Because remember, just like the flood story was not a story about God destroying the world, it was a story about God saving a family from the destruction of the world, remember? And just like uh, the story a couple weeks ago of Sodom and Gomorrah was not a story about God destroying the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was a story about saving the one righteous family that was in those cities from destruction, right? In the same way, this is not, as scholars will say, not just a story about child sacrifice, it's a story about God saying, stop it. So we frame the story by understanding there are so many ways to come at it, to enter into this text. But, but I say about this passage, what I say about so many, especially in the Old Testament, it's this. If we are to understand the truth of the story, if we are to, to allow the, 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 the story's unique truth to speak to us, we have to let the story stand on its own. We have to let it stand up and sit down on its own. That means we don't try to impose understanding upon it. We let it speak. That means we we make some allowances for some cultural differences that are so stark in contrast to ours that we just let it speak to us for a minute. We hold it out there and let truth fall upon us. 
So if we can let the story just kind of speak for itself today, we have to understand that there are some disturbing places, but maybe it's in those crevices, those creases, where our transformation really comes. The first is this. I think that there are some sweeping themes in this story that speak directly to our lives. Sweeping themes. One of them is this, in the way that the story is constructed, the way it's even framed. Did you notice that when we began reading, God is introduced as God the tester? The tester. God tested Abraham. So when the story opens up and the curtains pull back, God is the great tester of people. But by the end of the story, or at least where we stopped reading, The other end of the frame, the other bookend that holds this thing together, God provides a ram that is stuck in the thicket by its thorns. And so God is not just the tester, God is the provider. In fact, the name that's used there in Hebrew is Jehovah Jireh, God who provides. So in this one small text, God is introduced as the tester and the provider. And you and I look at that dichotomy of words we we say well how can both exist in the same God because this kind of God seems so different than the God of the father of our compassionate Jesus right how can this God be a tester and a provider all at once some of the theologians over the ages have struggled with this contrast that's in God's own character how can God be so big that he can host within God's own self what seems to be diametrically opposed characteristics. God who would test and God who would provide. John Calvin, around the time of the Reformation, had this to say. He said, the command and the promise of God are in conflict in this story. Martin Luther, the great reformer, followed up by saying, it's a contradiction with which God contradicts himself. Because here's the promise Through Isaac, you will have nations born of you. Isaac will be the avenue, the pathway to the fullest life you can imagine. Nations, so many people will be born of you through Isaac that it'll be like the stars of the sky, so many you can't count them. That's the promise. But the command in the very same story is kill Isaac. The promise and the command seem to undo each other. If I can, in fact, just kind of step out of the story for just a minute. Let me step over here, Bob. I'll come over your way. Do you see the echoes of what I call the Paschal mystery? We've been talking about the Paschal mystery for a long time. The Paschal mystery is that word that we use to describe the dying and the rising of life. The Paschal mystery is what Easter is all about, that Christ had to die in order to be raised up to new life. And so do we. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it just remains in your hand and it's just a seed. But if you let it go, if you let it go, if you relinquish it and it falls and it dies, then it explodes with new life. It's the Paschal mystery. And even here, back in the story, here's the promise. Isaac will be the way toward life for you. Nations will come out of him. Through him you will be blessed. But you've got to kill him. Everything that we hold dear must be held with a loose grip. For every one of us has an alabaster box 
And in that alabaster box, there is the most precious of treasures. Only if we're willing to open it and pour it out. The God who tests. See, we in our, heads up, here come the air quotes. In our sophisticated theology, we tend to think of a God who would test anybody as pretty primitive. That's primitive. We're way beyond that. The God I know doesn't test people. But this one does. And seems to have no qualms whatsoever about it. This God gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and takes away. Why? Because God can do that. Because God is God and we are not. And if you and I are going to yield ourselves to this journey that we call faith, remember that's what this series is all about, if we're going to say yes to a faith walk, then we are yielding ourselves to follow one who can give and take away. But our higher trust is in the reality that he will redeem it all in the end. Now see, in our house, when when the kids were young, (laughs) when the kids were young and we were teaching them how things were, We'd say, this thing's going to happen. And they may process, and they may say, why? What was, why? And we'd explain it, and we'd, we'd go through about two or three rounds of why. And, and if they didn't affirm the decision that we had made, if they didn't endorse it, if they didn't buy into it, if they rejected or protested it, uh, after two or three rounds, and Laura was so much better at this than I was, uh, Laura would say something like this, because I'm the mother and this conversation's over. All right? And then occasionally, Laura and I would have a conversation. I would say, why? And she said, because I'm the mother, and this conversation's over. And, and, and we can't explain it away. We can't, pretty, we can't domesticate it, but we try. We try to domesticate God to such a degree that God fits so conveniently and nicely in the seat that we have assigned for him in our lives. No. God is so much more mysterious that, yes, this one who is filled with compassion, so much compassion that not even a grave could contain him, can still give and take away. And maybe to help us understand, not explain away, but to help understand the mystery of this text, how God would be that kind of God, why would God do that? That's so unfair. It's not fair. Hashtag unfair, God. Why would God do that? One way is to understand the words that are used in this story. In Hebrew, the word for test, one of the words used in this passage is this one here in Hebrew. It's nasah. Nasah literally, when translated, means this. To test or to prove. To test or to prove. But there is another Hebrew word that's used in the Hebrew Bible, sometimes in conjunction with or interchangeably with Nasah, and it's this one, Bahan. Bahan literally means this, to examine or to try. Now follow this. To examine or to try, to test or to prove. And the second word has a kind of courtroom feel to it. A courtroom feel is to test or to try like you're on the witness stand. You want answers. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. That kind of moment. That's what, that's what Bahan is all about. And Bahan is a test that you go through to determine if you have undivided loyalty. Undivided loyalty. Are you in or are you not? And many scholars believe that because those words are used testing for undivided loyalty 
They believe also that this may be attached or connected in some way to Exodus chapter 20, which is the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Now follow this. You know the beginning of the Ten Commandments, don't you? In verse 1, it begins this way. Then God spoke all those words, and I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. At the heart of the story about Abraham being commanded to sacrifice Isaac is a question of whether or not we will have other gods before God. And you say, well, how in the world are you making that connection? What does having other gods before God have to do with this this story about Abraham and, and Isaac? Well, see, Abraham lived in ancient Mesopotamia which was filled with all kinds of deities, all kinds of major and minor gods. In fact, I've got a list of them. (laughs) All kinds of gods that throughout the history of Israel, God would continue to test the people. God would continue to bachan, to see if they had undivided loyalty to Yahweh and not other gods. Not other gods like Ahad. Adad, Ashur, Anu, Dagon, Enki, Erishkigal, to make sure that Abraham wasn't devoted to other gods. But I'm not talking about these gods. I'm not talking, when he's testing Abraham with Isaac, he's not testing Abraham to see if he has undivided loyalty to Nabu, Nergal, Ninhershag, Ninil, Ninyurta, Shamush, Sin. Tammuz, or the 140 plus other major or minor, which are. (laughs) Instead, he's testing, do you have undivided loyalty to me? Are you going to worship any other gods? And Abraham says, I'm not going to worship any god on that list. None of them. There's 140 options, and I I won't choose any of them. But God says, I'm not talking about that god. I'm talking about Isaac. Because the most precious thing in the world to Abraham was Isaac. The most treasured thing in the world to Abraham was Isaac. He had waited so long for Isaac. He had prayed for Isaac. He had looked for Isaac to come. He was hoping, praying, trying for years. For a century he waited for him to come. Now this alabaster box whose name is Isaac was held with such great esteem and, and, and treasure that he poured all of his love and devotion and sacrifice for him. And God wanted to test, are you more devoted to the blessing or the blesser? We can become devoted to the blessing and ignore the blesser. See, worship, if you understand what worship is all about, worship is simply our response to the thing that we value most in this world. It's how we behave when we're around the thing that we value the most. And that means we can worship a thousand gods. And I'm not even talking about ancient Mesopotamia. I'm not even talking about other religions that live today. I'm talking about pride. I'm talking about we can worship the path. See, if, if Isaac in Abraham's mind, is the pathway, the only pathway to his fullest, most blessed life, then you and I have pathways like that too. And we are at risk of worshiping those pathways. We can assume that that our only pathway to hope, that our only hope is our achievement, 
our success, our name, our accomplishment. We can assume that the only thing that matters most is our children, our families, a sense of security, safety. And the very moment that we assume that our hope lies in anything other than the Lord our God, it is possible that we are beginning to bend the knee before a God. And the word for that in the Bible is idolatry. Idolatry. Which raises a significant question for all of us to consider. Is there anything that we value more than devotion to the Lord our God? Is there any attitude, any pursuit, any goal, any vision? Is there anything, any person in our lives that we assume is our one and only way out? Our one and only hope? Because if the answer to that question is anything other than the Lord our God, and we are side by side with our patriarch Abraham, and God is testing to see if there is an undivided loyalty within him to trust God at all cost, to trust God regardless of where the journey of trust may wind and meander and fall down and rise up. That means you and I have to ask serious questions of the soul. Because see, the soul doesn't lie. We lie to ourselves. The mirror lies to us. What we say to ourselves lies. But if you spend long enough asking your own soul, what do you worship most? Your soul will tell you the truth. And our prayer needs to be the prayer of Psalm 139, which ends this way. Search me, O God, and know my heart and test me. Know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's not a bad way to wake up every morning, by the way. To wake up and say, this day, Lord, I, I recognize my highest hope is that I'm going to please you. My highest hope is that I might somehow honor you by the words that I speak and the things that I do for other people. But I, I, I know I will be tempted today to bend a knee at an altar of a lesser God. To, to the God of my own choosing, the God of my own making, to the God of my own ego so, Lord, as I begin this day before my feet hit the ground, I ask you to show me my heart. Show me my heart. And show me if there's any place in my heart where I have squeezed out any room for you to live. And lead me to the way everlasting so that I may be found, tested, and found to be undivided in my loyalty to you. Another great theme in this text that has something to say to us, and it's just hard to escape. I'm going to describe it this way. This story reveals something that's important to take note of. I'm just going to describe it this way. It reveals a pattern of promise. A pattern of promise. It seems like in the stories of the ancient matriarchs and patriarchs, there's a pattern. It's predictable. You can trace it. It goes something like this. A promise is made by God, but then somewhere along the way something happens and the, the promise is threatened. Oh, it may not happen. It was going to fall apart. Ooh. But then the promise is kept. In other words, promise made, promise threatened, promise kept. You've already seen it in the stories that we've studied. Do you remember in the very beginning, God said to Abram, when his name was Abram, I'm going to bless you. It's going to be fantastic. Follow me. And they did. But then the first story out of that narrative was he goes down to Egypt with his wife and they pretend that she is his sister, 
And the reader is like, ooh, the promise is threatened. Now she's living with Pharaoh. What's going to happen? And then by the end, plagues come to Pharaoh. They return to their home. (sighs) Promise kept. Promise made, promise threatened, promise kept. In the same way, later on, you and I studied, the promise is made. Uh, No, really, in one year's time, she will give birth. But the promise was threatened because impatiently they use Hagar and have another son. So the promise is threatened. But then the word comes that she's pregnant. Sarah's going to have a baby. Ah, promise kept. So this pattern keeps repeating. Promise made, promise threatened, promise kept. And what does that mean? For you and me, it means this. The promised version of your life, the promised version of your life that you embrace and you look for and you hope for and you long for, the promised version of your life will be threatened eventually. It will be and must be vulnerable. And you'll go through seasons in which the promise that you're pursuing will absolutely be on the very edge of surviving. And then it will be kept. So what do you do if you're in a season right now where everything that you've been promised, the life that Jesus promised, a life of fullness and abundance and, and true relationships and authentic kinship with one another, reconciliation, peace of heart, steadiness of mind. What happens when all that promise that Jesus talks about is vulnerable and threatened? Well, there are some things that we can do. Sometimes we can shut down. And everything seems great when life is strong, everything's moving, but when it's threatened and we go through a season in which the promise is threatened, sometimes we just shut down. And we're paralyzed. We don't want to get out of bed in the morning. We just don't want to go to work. You just you can't see past the threat. Or the flip side of that, we may go into hyperdrive. And if the promise is threatened, okay, all hands on deck. Let's protect the promise. Let's defend the promise. Let's secure the promise, making sure that it's not in violation, it's not threatened at all. But I'm I'm here to tell you that your Isaac doesn't need defending. Your Isaac, your Isaac, your promised life, the promised version of you, it doesn't need defending. Remember, it came as a gift from God to you. It will be threatened, but what is required is something more than put up your dukes. (laughs) Yeah, you can shut down. Or you can hanker down. But I think the text gives us a better option. See, when Abraham and Isaac are walking to the place where he's going to sacrifice his son, his entourage, his caravan is there, and they stop, and he sees where he's going to go, and the text offers these words. Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Kind of a daunting moment in the story. And they wait for him, and he says, yeah, we're going to go over there, and we're going to do the thing, and then we're going to come back. But you and I, as a reader, know what the thing is. He's going to go and kill his son, but what's provocative in this story is the use of a plural pronoun. <laughs> he says, we're going to go over there, and we're going to worship, and we will come back to you. Is it possible that Abraham, even in that moment, recognized we're going to go over there and we're going to do this thing that I've been commanded to do, but my trust in God's promise is so strong that I believe we both will come back here safe and sound. What do you do when the promised version of your life is threatened? You believe the promise more than the threat. 
You believe the promise more than the threat. Every threat is temporary. Every threat has a lifespan. Every threat comes and goes, but the one who is the beginning and the one who is the end keeps promises. There's even a further truth that can be heard right here. They come back and the next verse continues on. In chapter 22, verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, which, by the way, if I can step outside the story for just a moment, Bob, I'll come back over here. Is it an interesting, Bob, that here the one who's going to be sacrificed is carrying wood on his back to his own sacrifice, not unlike the Lord our God, whose precious son carried his own cross up the hill of Calvary. He carries his wood on his back, and then it says he himself, Abraham, carried the fire and the knife in his hands. So the two of them walked on together. The phrase I want you to pay attention to is that one. They walked on together because the very next verse continues in the same way. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father, and he said, Here I am, son. He said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them, familiar phrase, walked on together. Here Abraham is at at the threshold of sacrifice. His very promise is so threatened that we've got a visual image. He's got a knife in one hand and a fire in the other. This thing's going down. It's going to happen. And yet in the midst of of a season in which his promise is threatened, in which the promised version of his life is threatened, he walks on. What do you do in a season when your promise is threatened? You keep moving. One foot in front of the next. And Abraham, recognizing that the threat is real, it's getting real with every step, he starts to move a little slower. Come on in here anytime now, God. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready for anybody. But he keeps moving. What would it take for you to keep moving toward a kept promise? Even when all evidence is to the contrary that that promise will live past the night. Which raises a serious question for you and me, and it's the last question of the day, really. One I want you to think about all week. A question that really ruminates through this entire story, but more so through every day that you wake up in the morning. Do you trust God with the thing that you treasure most? I mean, how deeply do you really trust God with the thing that you treasure most? The alabaster box, the precious, long-awaited-for son, whatever it is, this life, this version, this thing that you've been longing for and God promised that there would be some version of it. To what degree do you trust God's capacity to care for the thing that you treasure most? All right, so last weekend, we did some skiing. Last weekend was a long weekend, and when you're married to a teacher and you have sons who are of school age, you go when the breaks come, and the breaks came, and it was a long weekend. We said, let's go someplace cold. So we went and skied. Three days. It was great. 
It's great. We love skiing. One of my sons is a skier. The other one is a snowboarder, which I can't figure out. That means that at the end of each run, whenever we get to the top of the mountain, there was a decision to make. Because what I've learned, even though I'm not a snowboarder, what I've learned is this. If you're on somewhat flat surface or a, a gradual decline, a skier is just fine. You have poles that can make it move along. But if you're a snowboarder, the flatter the, flatter the incline, the more trouble you have. For a snowboarder, you need it to be steep. Otherwise, you can't scoot yourself along. You kind of have to, you know, you know. You could, or, or, you know, just kind of. That was free, by the way. That was no, you didn't pay for that. So at the, at the top of the mountain, when we get to a place where we're about to do a run, it was not uncommon for us to get to a place where there were options. And Nathan, who's the snowboarder, will say, hey, that's too flat. I need to do this one or else I can't get down. Okay, well, we'll meet you at the bottom. We'll, just, we'll take this one. You take that one. We'll meet you at the bottom. Well, we got to the top of, of one, um, one peak, and there was an interesting sign that was put up to help us understand what was ahead. This sign came up first. <laughs> Easiest way. I took my, my phone out, took a picture of it, dropped it in the snow, you know. Took a picture of it. Easiest way. And the reason, in fact, the only reason I took this picture is because about 100 yards, maybe 50 yards in the opposite direction was this sign. (laughs) No easy way past this point. I mean, it cannot be more clear than that. In fact, I just want you to study this for just a moment. I I don't know that there could be any greater living parable than what it means to say yes to the life of faith. Because going back to the other slide there, Jeff, it's as if Abraham says there is no easy way past this point. Abraham comes to the edge of danger, of risk, of vulnerability, of threat, and still continues to move even though he recognizes this is not is not easy. There is no easy way past this point. Which is perhaps why I throw up the no easy way slide there. Which is probably why, how many people do you see on that run? Now wait, wait, hang on. How many do you see on the other one? Boom! And I heard the Lord Jesus say, In the Sermon on the Mount, these words. The gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many who take it. But the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Beloved, if Abraham and Sarah, if the patriarchs and matriarchs have anything to say to us today, perhaps it is this. There's no easy way past this point. Yes, there's a promise, and that gets everybody on board. But the promise will be threatened, and that's where many of us jump off. But if we muster the faith, 
to keep putting one foot in front of the next, believing with an undaunted trust that God will provide, that our story ends with provision. It may have begun with testing, but it ends with provision. Then the journey will be made worth it. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we confess to you right now, we confess to you that we have no problem following you when everything is just great. It's when we come to the yellow sign that says no easy way past this point that most of us choose the other path. Don't let us do that. Don't let us do that. Not today, not now. Even now as we commit our ways to you, as we say yes, as we say a further yes to putting one foot in front of the next to follow you toward the kept promise that is coming, we ask that you would give someone courage this day to respond to your grace. In Christ's name, amen.